Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Cisco. Modern modernization today has the products you need to modernize your workplace, like Wi-Fi booster crystals. Let their metaphysical powers enhance connectivity and spiritually awaken your Internet of Things. At CDW, we get crystals won't modernize your network. You need Cisco Catalyst access points that are Wi-Fi 6 compatible and can help you improve reliability, increase capacity, and reduce latency. Cisco and IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Find out more at cdw.com slash Cisco. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect. There are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for you. I just finished an episode called Water for All Regulation, all about comparing the different regulations in different areas, like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of, of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. everybody and welcome to the here we are podcast today i'm in madison wisconsin i'm in wisconsin stopping through saying hi to some family and stuff and doing a few shows here and there that sort of thing and i i emailed um past guest bass roker to uh see if he had any suggestions for guests that i could get and um and then i I was able to reach out to a few people, and today I'm able to sit down with Assistant Professor of Psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Gary Lupian. Thank you, Gary, for uh, coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Shane. I appreciate it. Yeah. And you study study language, uh, which is 
um, a, a big th- this isn't this isn't like English class no. kind of stuff. This is this is like the study of of language. Why we have yeah, the, language the capital L as <laughs> as people often write language as a as a capacity. Yeah. It, it's funny how um, it, it's kind of ironic how difficult it is to articulate how powerful language is. It is. It is. And <laughs> it's like, so there's some limitations there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, so, I was trying to figure out, like, how do I introduce what is it that you do specifically? Like, you kind of study what words do. You do some how there's a diversity of language, how labeling affects um consciousness sort of or perception rather yeah yeah uh well so one one way to think about it uh the sort of big question that i've been after uh is uh what does language do for us so uh it's something we often take for granted and uh actually when i uh teach this stuff to undergrads they often sort of assume that well language is just how humans communicate and humans have human language and dogs have dog language, and dolphins have dolphin language, and right. ants have ant language. Uh, but while uh, all animals communicate in some way, um, only humans communicate using language. And humans communicate in all kinds of other ways as well. So we have facial expressions, we have body postures, and those map pretty uh, well onto, say, facial expressions and body postures of uh, other primates. Mm. But unlike other primates are unlike, as far as we know, any other animal, humans use language, which um, allows us to not only uh, communicate easily about basically anything we want, but to, uh, it's an open-ended system. So anything that can be thought, basically, can be communicated in one way or another. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, the difference between, say, your your average primate that has this, um, uh, you know, still fairly impressive ability to be to be like to signal, hey, there's a hawk, right? Or hey, there there's a lion approaching, or something like that. We can we, we can say we we have all these subtle differences. We could say last week down by the river right. on this certain path by the berries i saw a lion i don't know if there's a pack around there we might want to or we can have we can create um lion gods for ourselves like yeah. things that don't exist and in, in right. these these crazy uh, concepts that are right, so right, much right. farther so down. we can we can talk about hypotheticals we can talk about things that um we haven't experienced personally but that we found out about from someone else so Without language, you can't really have a complex culture because, in a way, you can only um, you can only learn what you've learned yourself or what you've observed yourself, um, and you can imagine how uh, well, well, you can imagine what a difference it would make if each generation of humans would essentially have to start over, learning just what they can in their lifetimes from their own experience and maybe from observing others, right? How many of us would, uh, you know, invent... Coats. Or coats <laughs> or, or figure out how yeah. to control fire, right? Like, it's not that we're that, as individuals, that we're that much smarter than uh, 
our ancestors. Right. Um, but as a as a society, we are because we can benefit from all the discoveries of others. And uh, we have all these hand me downs of information. We have hand me downs of information, and and it's you know we we often uh, underestimate the extent to which we depend on these things. So, for example, it's pretty clear that various inventions, you know, those are things that are sort of handed down. Like we don't have to invent, reinvent the wheel. But it's also all the things that are embedded in language. So, for example, um, I kind of take it for granted that in the process of learning English, we learn words for various colors, right? Um, but in the process of learning those color words, um, it doesn't just make it easier to say, like, okay, well, the, that's a green thing, that's a blue thing, that's a yellow thing. But we're learning the very idea that colors are something that can be named. Right. And that's not... Uh, uh, something that most of us, if we were not exposed to it, you know, in the process of learning language, in the process of being enculturated in, in the linguistic culture, uh, that we would invent on our own. Hmm. Right? And, and, and that also changes our perception because they, then we have these categories of, of color, too, once, we have, once we're able to articulate that's, red or blue or something like that. That's right. Yeah. And so there, there are studies out there showing that uh, this experience with color words uh, does in some cases seem to make our color perception more categorical so that all the blues sort of appear more similar to one another. Um, something I've been thinking a lot about is uh, the, the difference in the kinds of information that we communicate with language versus the kind of information that we pick up through our senses. So any... Um, specific, you know, anytime you're seeing something blue, right, it's always a specific shade of blue, and it's also a specific thing. We don't get to experience color in the abstract, mm. right? So it's our perceptual experiences are generally very concrete. Um, we don't experience dogs in general. We experience particular dogs, right? We don't experience rain in general. It's always a specific kind of rain if it's raining. But we can uh, with language, right, talk about all of these things in, uh, in generalities, in categories. And often it's the categories that matter, mm. right? It might matter that someone has a dog, but not what kind of dog, right? Or that the car is blue, but not the specific shade of blue. And so language um, allows us to actually abstract from the specifics that our perceptual systems kind of provide us with. Um, and, and provide this a very uh, efficient framework for uh, talking about generalities. And, and I, I would argue thinking about generalities as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Someone can say, I want to be happy or I am happy. And what in the world does that even mean? Does that mean you accomplished a lot of stuff? Does that mean you're on a roller coaster right now? Those are two very different there, there, there are very different things, and, and actually, you know, it's remarkable. We, we often assume that um, we understand one another. You know, someone says, I want to be happy, and you think you've understood them. But actually, they might be thinking of a version of happy very different from the version that you're thinking of when, when, you, when you hear them say it. But uh, one, one consequence of using these words might be that um, we gain this experience uh, thinking in terms of more general categories that uh, might allow us to uh, basically think in a more powerful way. And we're hmm. not so locked into the specifics of particular situations. 
it is interesting how flexible language it, because it seems like you know you you can kind of understand the usefulness of language and and i mean kind of get a sense of how new words were formed and labeled and everything but but it's funny to me the diversity of language you you would think at some point you would you would be like Okay, we got it. We have the perfect language yeah. now. There is yeah, yeah. There, once you once you have up and down, like why why change up and down? It articulates those directions quite well. But OMG, language is is changing all the time. You know, there, there's texting languages that are forming. Yep, up, you know. Yep, and um, something I've I've looked at and and, and researched a bit uh, is sort of what. Um, what, what what factors are responsible for language changing uh, in one direction or another? So some things, you know, once they're invented and languages are invented, right? All languages have every word is is a is an invention, right? Um, and many things like up down are pretty stable. You know, once you have up down, that's broadly useful. Uh, lots of languages have these kinds of terms. Right, that's going to stick around. Obviously, words for various kinds of artifacts they come and go with uh, with the artifacts. But words sort of have a, um, a life of their own. Once they're introduced, they often get co-opted for uh, other um, other functions. Mm. Right, and like, so- like I can think of a word like uh, pot, and maybe the first thing that pops in my head is weed. But maybe I'm talking about a crock pot. Maybe I'm talking about pot stickers maybe i'm talking about sitting yeah. on the pot and yeah. Like, oh. yeah yeah <laughs> right 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 um and and people are are incredibly flexible in um you know thinking about like using you know what what, what is in, in theory the same word but using it to mean very different things in different contexts right so uh I, i'm not someone who believes that words have fixed definitions uh, although it's it's interesting that often we can uh, pr- provide such definitions in dictionaries. Actually, writing definitions for words, especially common words, is very, very difficult, right? Uh, if these definitions were really sort of in our heads, uh, you'd think that they would be pretty easy to write down, but it, it takes a lot of skill to write good definitions. It is funny how often I find myself looking up the definition of a word that, you know, I think I use all the time, and I'm fairly. I'm like, but what is exactly right. the definition yeah, of yeah, that yeah. according to Webster? Right. You know, right. And if all you knew was that definition, you probably uh, couldn't use the word very well, right? Like, right. If you're if you had the robotic kind yeah, of yeah. definition of it, it wouldn't be very flexible. Right. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There was a. Uh, I heard an interview with uh, uh, Jeff Nunberger. Maybe it was a monologue that he gave on Fresh Air. A while back, and he was uh, talking about uh, redefining uh, marriage and how dictionaries, right, have to make decisions about like what's the definition of marriage, what's the definition mm. of husband, um, and you know, does the the spread of gay marriage does that uh, mean these definitions need to be changed? And his point was that actually um, the definition of husband. Uh, has not changed at all. It is now as it was before. Uh, the, the definition is male spouse, right? And, and I actually think that's not the case, right? Because uh, if people have in their minds a sort of default meaning of marriage being 
um, between straight people, right, then husband necessarily denotes wife, that, that, that there is like this link between them. Right. And uh, in the context of a, of a gay uh, relationship, right, the link, that, that link is different, right? You can have, it's, it's more symmetrical, you can have, you know, two husbands, right? And so the meaning of husband actually does change. Um, right, right. And, and that's fine. Right, like that's just you know words, the the meanings uh, shift as as the culture shifts. Right. Hmm. It it's you know I, I, I was, it's funny how you can also have all these kind of miscommunications or or uh, like I don't have the best vocabulary in the entire world, um, but I'm still sometimes able to articulate ideas in a way that people are like oh i know what you're saying with that like i remember when i was a kid i was i for some reason i wouldn't pronounce the ing i would i would say so instead of saying something as long rather right. than short i would say lawn like sounding like a a, a yard like yeah. someone's yard and no one ever corrected me because they would just hear the context of it and yeah. and then perceive it that way and 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 they wouldn't hear that i was mispronouncing it it took me till i was like 10 or 11 years old before like <laughs> one of my good friends that was around me a lot noticed that i was doing this pointed it out and it was like incredibly embarrassing yeah so one property of language that um allows that to work is that language is pretty redundant it's it's sometimes called uh, robustness language is robust um you can leave a lot of words out mispronounce words right you can talk and the train passes by and you know someone it, it makes it harder to understand but you can still do it because there's a lot of redundancy in the signal right and the same is true actually of written language so you know even at the level of the um the the, the letters themselves you can um, scramble a lot of the letters or remove the top half of all the letters and it makes it harder to read but you can still do it because enough of the signal is still there um, and uh, presumably the reason languages um, evolve to be this uh, redundant and robust is that um, you often you, it's actually kind of impressive the speed at which we process language and if there was only one little bit of information like one specific sound you had to hear to, to distinguish between if it's is it this word or this word or this word, right? There would just be commu communication breakdowns happening much more often, um, you know. And so, uh, you know, like students are uh, told um, earlier on that the, the difference between a B and a P, for example, or a T and a D is in voicing, right? So uh, a D, you know, your vocal cords are vibrating, right? Uh, and a T is this, it's basically the same sound, the same phoneme, except you, you know, your tongue is in the same place, everything is the same, except that you, you don't produce, uh, it's, it's unvoiced, right? So if you kind of say T. T. Yeah, it's pretty, it's D. pretty. <laughs> T. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's um, D, T. <laughs> I feel silly saying this, yeah. but it is interesting. Right, but actually, if you think about it, then it should be impossible to uh, to distinguish between D's and T's when people are whispering because there's no voicing there, right? They're just... But you can still hear it. Yeah. Right? Like, so, and that's because there is more redundancy there. It's not just voicing. It's other things. And so you can mispronounce things. You can, you know, have like a weird 
vocal apparatus, right? And you're, you'll still be understandable to people. And, and, and of course, we can understand uh, people speaking with accents, you know, fairly well. It depends on, on the listener and, and, and the speaker. But um, so, so there's a lot of flexibility there in that system, yeah. So if, with, with um, our ability to communicate so easily, even, even when we're, uh, even when there is kind of room for error or vagueness or whatever you might call it, hey, how, how did it get to be that there's all these different languages? I mean, I, we're all familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel, of yeah, course, yeah. Where, well, where God got very upset that we were building this tower up to him, and then he kind of just dispersed everyone and made them all speak gibberish. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> it's, it's interesting to think about why there is even a story about that in the Bible in the first place, right? right. Like, it sort of makes sense, you know, that you'd have uh, uh, stories in the Bible or other religious texts about, like, where life came from, right? Like, right. That's something. But, like, it's sort of weird if you think about it, like, that there is a story at all about, like, why there are different languages. And I imagine people, right, coming across, like, other people who didn't speak their language. And, like, you know, it's, like, weird. Like, what, if what's we up with all that? came from the same two people, how in the world would. Uh... Yeah. Um, so. Um, so there are different answers. Um, the standard answer is that uh, if you have a community of people, right, and everyone is talking to everyone else, right, right, um, then you know there isn't much room for for in that kind of community to develop different ways of speaking, right? Because like everyone is sort of checking their language, you know, with with everyone else, right? Right. But then if you know as the community fragments and you have some people who are um, talking more like to their neighbors, right, and less to the people, you know, a mile away or ten miles away or a hundred miles away, right? Then there is opportunities for drift, right? And it's very similar, sort of actually analogous to um, drift that happens in uh, genetic evolution in animals. You know, mm -hmm. you have a population of birds, say, and uh, you know you're basically mating with the individuals are closer to you, right, and uh, so your immediate group stays pretty similar, uh, but because of random mutations, it diverges from groups uh, that you're not mating with, right? Um, and so that's been the standard story of why there are different languages. Basically, because not everyone can talk to everyone else, and especially if you're like on an island, right? You move to an island, you know, you're cut off from people like on another island, right? And like you wait a few centuries and you're going to end up speaking different languages, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not unlike how when you have your close group of friends um, yeah. from that you went to high school with or whatever and you guys have spent all this time together, you eventually start making up your own kind of words for things or right, slangs right, right. for things. And, and yeah, and exactly. And so that's been the, the sort of standard story. Um, with my uh, collaborator, Rick Dale, uh, we've proposed um, a, a sort of alternative to this where, you know, drift still plays an important role, but it doesn't explain why languages differ in the ways that they do, right? So if you think back to birds, it'd be one thing to say that, like, okay, well, birds, you know, over time, the populations split, and they um, start to have different shaped beaks and so on and different... But... Uh, that's not a very satisfying explanation of why the birds have the particular shaped beak that they do, right? The, right. 
you know, the kind of explanation that makes a lot more sense is that um, these birds come to specialize in d- eating different things. For example, the so island that they got stuck on had different nuts to crack. Exactly, then. exactly. And so um, the shape of the beak has been selected by uh, various um, ecological uh, constraints. So having to eat certain kinds of the availability of certain foods right, makes it more adaptive to have a certain shape beak. And uh, we propose that something similar happens with languages, where um, people living in different places, basically uh, depending on the circumstances in which language is used and learned, that that has an effect on the kind of language that people living in different places will end up having. The the specific thing we focused on was actually um, the sort of demographic um, uh, the demographic differences. So uh, some languages are spoken by small groups. Uh, in fact, half of the world's languages are spoken by fewer than 7,000 people. Right. So most human languages are fairly small. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in many cases, you might literally know everyone who speaks your language. Right. Right. Uh, and that's pretty foreign to an English speaker because we're used to people all over the world speaking English. But actually, you know, that's sort of the normal state of affairs. Uh, and and um, until, you know, fairly recently, um, you always had sort of trade languages and, and, and languages that people uh, would be more likely to use for these various, you know, purposes. But often the, the native person, of, uh, the native language of a person would be a language spoken by a very tightly knit community. Well, this is uh, because humans have had language as far as we can guess. What are right. what are people guessing? Like a hundred and fifty thousand years or something like that for sapiens? Or well, so the date uh, it's impossible to right, know, right, right, right? Because language doesn't fossilize, and there's it, actually debate about whether uh, Neanderthals had what we would call language. Right. Um, you know, there's no. Um, for, for for me, it would be very cool to think that there, you know, existed humans say 100 or 150 thousand years ago, um, with no language. Uh, there's no evidence, you know, for that. The, the language is likely fairly old in, right. in our lineage. Yeah. The the point is is yeah. that what we do know is that the, that humans' life back then was completely different. They were living different. in big ci- cities like this. They were in bands yeah. of yeah. 50 to 150 right, people. Right, or... right. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's still the case for many people uh, around the world um, where they typically really only communicate or really predominantly communicate with family and friends and people from their community. And so we speculated that languages that um, emerge in these kinds of environments are likely to have uh, st- predictable differences in their grammars from languages that are sort of more optimized for um, communicating with strangers, basically. So English would be an example of a language that is often used to talk to people we've never talked to before. And mm-hmm. so the grammar and the structure of the language has to be such to to basically allow that to happen. In addition, languages like English, these larger languages, uh, meaning languages spoken by more people, spoken um, uh, in more regions of the world, they have more um, non-native learners. So adults, there are, lo- there are a lot more people learning English mm. than learning, you know, uh, a tribal 
language. Right. Right. Or even, um, for example, a language that, uh, you know, considering doesn't have that few speakers, but takes something like Icelandic, which has maybe 300,000 speakers or so. Uh, if you speak Icelandic, chances are very good that you are Icelandic ethnically and probably live in Iceland. Uh, if you speak English, you could be anywhere. Right. Right. And so English has had this pressure, um, cultural pressure, to be learned by, uh, by all kinds of people, to be learned as a non-native language, whereas other languages only have to be learnable by infants. And so we, we made some predictions about how the grammars of languages like English, so these larger languages, should differ from languages like um, Icelandic, for example. Um, and the, the main finding is that languages spoken by more people tend to be uh, grammatically simpler, particularly with regard to um, things like you know, grammatical gender and case markings and various ways that you uh, decline words. You know, so if you think even fairly small differences like the difference between um, English and German, for mm -hmm. example, um, English was used to be more like German. And um, we argued that partly as a result of being learned by more people, being learned as a non-native language for, um, for, for you know, a good chunk of its history, uh, it's been... Um, Simplified. Uh, it's been simplified or creolized in, in a right uh, same way. So people have observed that creole languages that are um, that created when people um, uh, from different languages basically have to communicate, um, that they are simpler um, grammatically than sort of more conventional languages. And we made the argument that actually something like this applies to all languages, just to various degrees. Hmm. Um, so, uh, and I think I saw some example of, of this that that grammatically, um, Latin is an exceptionally complicated language compared to the languages that kind of came from it, and, yeah, and, and derived from it as it was like kind of pushed on. That's other. right. That's right. So that's a nice historical example where um, Latin, as it spread with the Roman Empire. And as it was learned by all kinds of people as a non-native language, right, the languages that Latin turned into, the Romance languages, are all grammatically simpler than Latin was. Some uh, are more than, than others. So, for example, um, Spanish arguably um, simplified more than Romanian. Right, and Spanish right. is also more widespread. It's spoken by more people, and well, many more people, and around you know a much larger part of the world. Um, so that's that would be an example. I mean, those it, aren't experiments, of course. Those are just uh, things that happen, and, and we can try to account for them with with our theory. Uh, but it's hard to to study this this stuff experimentally. Hmm. Actually, right? We can't control it, it, history. It's funny because that's like the kind of um, we, we Americans get a lot of crap from the English um, for uh, having kind of a, a more simplified version of of English. I yeah, feel like. yeah. We're actually just like this day. I was uh, just today. I was looking at some data. We collected um, a bunch of. Uh, uh, 
scripts, uh, subtitle from the subtitle database of uh, American and British TV shows. Uh, and we're running some some tests, seeing how, how they compare, because um, they're about, you know, it, it's, it's um, they're both f- written for TV, so they're sort right. of similar, similar genres of TV shows and so on. <clears throat> and um, the idea is that American and British English are, are pretty similar to, to one another, but um, in the ways in which they differ, you know, might we explain those differences in part by American English having had um, having been influenced more by uh, foreigners, basically by you know the U.S. is a is a Melting country of, of of immigrants, yeah, and all kinds of people have learned English coming from all kinds of different languages. Um, and if even now we look, you know, at what proportion of uh, people in the U.S. are native speakers of English compared to the U.K., and it's a fairly big difference. Um, I think it's something like eighty-five percent in the U.S. and Mm. Uh, more than ninety-five percent in Britain, although it's it, probably going down uh, because of an influx of immigration. We can we can make predictions about how that might uh, influence the language. So going forward with this um, uh, globalization and and all all the people finally coming around to this American way of, way of of speaking the right way. Well, S- screw these crumpet stuffers. Uh, <laughs> um, I, 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 is it just eventually? Is it just going to be a series of uh, of, of of grunts and and <laughs> noises? Or well, I. Uh... No, but you know the uh, American version of English is like not the endpoint, right? So right, if you think right, about right. Uh, as English has become really a global language, right, and it's being used as a as a lingua franca, for example, in Europe, right? So someone from France and someone from Denmark, right, are very likely to speak English to one another, even though it's neither of their native language, mm-hmm. right? And actually, if you look at the sort of rise of global English. Um, it's going to be different from either British English or American English. I see. English, as used a, as a second language, is likely to be more regular. It's it's going to be um, simpler in certain ways um, uh, than language as used by native speakers. Um, and and historically, there have been cases like this. So um, Swahili, for example, has a um, uh, a core population of People who speak it as a as a as a native language, and it's used by a much larger number of people as uh, sort of a lingua franca, right? Mm. And the version that's used as a lingua franca is um, it simplifies a lot of the sort of traditional uh, grammatical classes that native speakers you know tend to use. So the native speakers tend to speak a more uh, complex version of the language. I see. Well, I mean, I guess that makes sense if if, if you know, you're being taught Spanish in school. It's a, definitely a much more formalized kind of yeah um, version of Spanish than what your average uh, South Mexican or whatever might be right. speaking. Right. Um. So, it, it, could could we go back to um just the side or or one actually before this? I want to talk about it. Do you, or have you looked into any of the work with with um, kind of some of the origins of language with um, 
I've seen some ideas that that a lot of words in different languages often tend to mimic like the the Bobo and Kiki yeah, uh, yeah. experiment that's popular. Which, by the way, you can pause this podcast right now and Google Bobo and Kiki, and then and then two pictures will pop up, and you get to guess which one is Bobo and which one is Kiki, right. and you're right. going to guess what everyone else does, which is the rounder, cloudier shaped one is Bobo, and then the sharper one is Kiki. Yeah, and and then and 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 I've I've heard some people seem to think that. Words like bitter or um, bubble, or uh, I'm, I'm having trouble thinking of a bunch of examples off the top of my head, um, tend to kind of mimic this physical sensation that we yeah, feel. Yeah. I know this probably isn't your work exactly. So, so actually, we have done some work on it. Uh, postdoc in my lab, Marcus Perlman, is, um, recently published a paper um, and I can, I can briefly uh, summarize it. Um, and, and this idea... Um, of non-arbitrariness in language is sort of coming back very strongly. It's an old idea. Uh, it, it goes all the way back to Plato, uh, you know, and this question of whether there's whether some words are better names for things than other words. And uh, it probably comes from... Like you know, onomatopoeia, probably onomatopoeia, the worst. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. A word that's for, a word. yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, a word for when things sound like the thing that they are. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, so this idea was sort of rejected by, um, you know, by, by the field of linguistics uh, more than a century ago, and, and it's been sort of coming back uh, as methods for studying it have improved. And so... The intuition is that, well, there doesn't seem to be any particular reason why a dog is called a dog and a cat is called a cat. And indeed, you know, you go to another language and you have completely different names mm. for the same animals. And so that sort of seems to support the idea that there's no reason why something should be called one thing versus another thing. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, you have, of course, words that are very clearly mimicking various environmental things like like sounds, right? And then, uh, so, so onomatopoeia, right? Like buzz and, you know, pow, things yeah. like that, right? Uh, and um, hiss and these these kinds of words, right? Um, English, as it turns out, compared to many other languages, is pretty poor in in in, in its lexicon, you mm. know. Oh, sorry. So where we do have words, they tend to mimic you know, the sound of the word, mimics the sound of the animal or the sound of like whatever is being made in the environment. But when you look at other languages, you find much richer vocabularies of these words. They're, they've been um, variously called expressives or ideophones. Um, and they seem to comprise a uh, distinct class of words that are meant to be very evocative. And they can evoke not just sounds, but also different kinds of tastes, different even like personality traits, like what what a word for when someone is really angry, like or fuming or whatever, right? Like yeah. that are meant to evoke a very particular like like visual sort of uh, or, or or sensory, uh, I guess more generally, like uh, a kind of feeling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Japanese, for example, as language is is very rich in these kinds of um, words, and. Um, so as people realize that actually, particularly non-Indo-European languages tend to have 
much more of these words, right? People kind of started thinking, well, maybe it's actually a, a more important part of language than you know previously supposed. Mm. And so in a, um, we have a couple of recent studies where we looked at this. Uh, in one study, we um, let people play this game of vocal charades uh, where, uh, so this is uh, my postdoc, Marcus Perlman, uh, the first author on this. So people were given cards with words on them. And the words were various adjectives, uh, like rough and smooth and short and big. And they had to uh, produce some sound, some non-speech sound. <laughs> they couldn't use words that would let the other person, they were playing this in pairs, guess what word they mean. And it was actually kind of hard because although they had words in front of them, not all the words were shared between people. So some of the words weren't even shared but they had to guess out of all possible words. Right. Um, and the cards gave them a sense of like the kinds of meanings that the person might express, um, but, uh, but it was still pretty open-ended. And so we, we uh, let people, uh, had a bunch of pairs of people who played this game, and they gave feedback to one another. And so um, if the person got it right, there's, you know, the, the uh, so there's a guesser and a vocalizer, and the guesser would, uh, um, would uh, the vocalizer would, would say, that's correct, or, or right, nod right. their head, right? And so, um, and if they got it wrong, the person would say what the word was. Uh, and so uh, it's not surprising that within each pair, people actually quickly settled on some vocalizations hmm. that they could use, right? Yeah. Because they were getting feedback from one another. Uh, but then what we did is, we, we recorded all these vocalizations, and we played them to people uh, online on Mechanical Turk who weren't part of the game, and we asked, can they guess the meanings of these vocalizations? Um, and the answer was that people were really good at guessing like the meaning of these vocalizations, even though they've never heard them before, mm. and they weren't part of this game. <laughs> and then we can see, okay, well, what acoustic features did they use to, right. to get at it? And it's a lot of the things that you would expect, like words signaling, you know, longer things tend to be longer themselves. Words signaling, for example, rough versus smooth, the actual vocalization people used for rough um, was noisier. So mm. it had a lot more noise in it. Um, the vocalization for smooth um, had a higher harmonics to noise ratio. So these sort of acoustic features tracked the, the meanings. And of course, this was a very small set of meanings. It, you know, it, it's not obvious how you would like communicate a uh, table, you know, using a made right, right, vocalization. Right. Uh, but it does speak to uh, this, you know, the fact that people are pretty good at this. Um, I have, uh, I bring it up because one of my best friends, a very funny comic, Dave Waite, uh -huh. he, he pretty much just doesn't use words at all. Like, he's yeah. pretty much just like, eh, eh, and I know exactly what he means right. all the time, just with, like, little weird grunts and pointing and stuff. And it's like, he communicates emotion better than anyone yeah. I've ever seen with, like, the best vocabulary imaginable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we have uh, a sort of crazy study that um, we're uh, submitting right now to uh, to a journal where um, one of uh, Marx's friends had some connections to a school for the deaf in China. And so mm. there were kids who were congenitally deaf 
who, um, you know, because they're deaf, they, they haven't heard any sounds. Um, and uh, we had to sort of play a, a similar, much simpler version of this game uh, where they had to vocalize um, to mean, for example, the small ball versus the big ball or the short string versus the long string. And we had the same kind of playback experiment where we recorded these vocalizations, played them back to American English-speaking adults, right? So different culture, you know, right? totally different environment. And, uh, you know, people weren't hugely accurate, but they were all above chance at guessing the meaning of, you know, in this pretty constrained way, meaning of these vocalizations. So even absent auditory experience, people seem to have some correspondence between modalities so that, you know, a longer sound, you know, corresponds to something that is physically longer, or a bigger sound corresponds to something, uh, a, b a bigger object corresponds to a louder sound. Wow. Um, so, so that's, that's interesting. Um, and, and what happens when, if it, it, do you, do you do any work with, um, you, you know, I'll sometimes hear about uh, various, uh, oh, what's the word? Is it aphasias or whatever, where, where people have some sort of a um, problem being able to speak or um, yeah, uh, uh, like they'll have a stroke or something yep. like that, and then and then be missing. Uh, I, I'm forgetting the various regions of the brain where all all of a sudden now they can understand words but not concepts or the other way around. Yeah, I mean, uh, so so I've done some work in collaboration with people. Uh, um, um, collaborator of mine, Dan Merman, um, who's um, now Drexel. In Philly, and we did some work on um, some fairly high-functioning uh, people with aphasia who primarily had they had pretty good understanding, but uh, problems with naming things. And the idea there was um, this is getting back more to the cognitive functions of language uh, that if language is not just important for communicating, but it's important for helping us think about things, right? Then uh, language impairments, the prediction is that if you have a language impairment, that should not just make it harder to communicate, mm. uh, which is sort of true by definition, right? Like, of course, you know, that's like the definition of aphasia is you have problems communicating. Uh, and so pe most research on aphasia has focused on communication problems. Right. Um, and we wanted to know whether there are also corresponding problems in uh, tasks where you don't really have to um, communicate anything but you have to group things together in certain ways, uh, categorize things together. So I mentioned that language, because words are categories, right? And um, kind of using language is, in some sense, you know, causing you to think more categorically than you would otherwise. Right. And so it, we, it's we funny because yeah. language isn't just used to communicate with others. I talk to myself all the time, right. or I walk in and I think to myself, "This is a desk," or you know, something like that. And then I'll. And vice versa, someone can yeah. say desk, and I picture a desk that's in, right. in my head. The, that's right. And that's just the stuff you're conscious of. I mean, right. we know from various experiments that if you show someone an object, its name is uh, basically being automatically activated, even in the absence of a person, like, overtly saying the word, mm. right? So for familiar objects. Um, and so, yeah, we had people do this task where uh, they just had to, um, you know, click on all the objects uh, that were green, for example. And this might seem really straightforward, right? Except that, um, you know, they have no problem seeing, seeing color, right? But um, in the, the ability to group things together on color means that you have to 
like put a uh, lime and a grasshopper together, right? Even though they have not much in common, but yeah, they both happen to be green. Right. And so you have to sort of selectively attend to the color and ignore, temporarily ignore all kinds of other things. And so we found that people with aphasia, uh, as a function of how bad their naming impairment was, they had trouble specifically on these kinds of, oh. of, of trials. Yeah, where huh. they could do it to some extent, but they were, they were not... They, they were impaired. not with the kind of ease that yeah yeah and um and in, I did another study in which an earlier study actually in which we uh tested just college undergrads on a similar task um they would have like three pictures of things and one of them would differ from the others in some way like there would be two large I- items and one small item right and they would have to choose the the small one as not belonging because it's like obviously smaller than the others. So again, you, you have to like attend to one dimension like size and ignore other things. And when people were doing this task while um, uh, undergoing what's called verbal interference, in this case it was they had to re- keep repeating a bunch of numbers while they were doing the task, sort of messing up with the ability to name the objects and name the dimensions, uh, they were uh, impaired. They're, performance was specifically impaired when you had to really attend to a particular category, right? Wow. But not impaired in their ability to, like, put, you know, a baby and a stroller together because, like, yeah, babies go in strollers, you know, for all sorts of reasons. They just go together. So uh, it's like interfering with language didn't really impact their ability to put the baby and a stroller together, but it impacted their ability to put, you know, a cherry and a brick together as both being red. Ah, uh. Huh. Example. Yeah. Um, so what's it, what's just a little because we we kind of started with this and then and we're getting back into it. But what what's some of your more um, like recent work? This uh, you know stuff that you're um, a little more excited about 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 um, just just the effects of labeling on on perception. Um, and I mean, because we haven't we've we've covered it in in bits and pieces. But. Yeah. Well, so a, a study that it's not that recent at this point, it's a few years old, but um, um, that that I'm really proud of is um, we used a um, this technique called uh, flash suppression. So this was uh, with uh, Emily Ward. And uh, flash suppression is um, – so a good way of explaining what it is is um, if you are wearing uh, – some some of the listeners might uh, had the, seen this kind of demo somewhere, but if you're wearing those uh, red green glasses called anaglyph glasses, mm-hmm. like uh, so, like old school 3D movies, stuff like that, um, and uh, you show an image that such that um, with one eye you are seeing, for example, a face. With another eye, you're seeing a house. Okay, so dip, you're, normally, you know, both eyes are getting more or less the same information. In this case, they're getting different information. So what happens then is, um, instead of seeing some mix of a house and a face, you would see for a few seconds you see a house, then it switches to a face, ah. and then it switches back. So it keeps switching back and forth, mm-hmm. right? So um, so that's called binocular rivalry, and uh, flash suppression was a, a technique developed um, maybe 10 years ago or so 
where one eye gets uh, a picture, so say a house, and another eye is getting um, sort of these patterns of noise, for example, a bunch of colorful rectangles kind of flashing at you and they're high contrast. And so what happens is they dominate your perception and what the person ends up seeing is just those flashing rectangles, even though one of their eyes is getting a pretty clear image of some object. So that object is suppressed. Is it because that object's easier and, and it takes more attention to figure out the like contrasting? Well, so it's, it's because you're getting this confli conflicting information and the object is sort of a weaker input and it's being dominated by the stronger dynamic noise patterns, even though the noise patterns aren't really, uh, they don't mean anything. Right. But they still dominate. And sometimes, you know, it depends from person to person, but sometimes you can stare at this for a minute and you just, you don't see anything um, except for these flashing noise patterns. So we wanted to see if hearing the word of the object that is invisible, made invisible in this way, would cause it to become visible. And so we, we did this experiment where we used flash suppression to suppress the images. Uh, and prior to um, each of these suppression episodes, you heard some word, so like pumpkin or zebra. And sometimes the word matched the picture that was being shown to you, and sometimes it didn't match. And the finding was that when it matched, you were more likely to actually see it. And all you had to do was just say, was there some picture there? Mm. And so if you heard the, its name, it made it easier to see. And if you heard the name and it was wrong, like if you, if you heard pumpkin but the picture is actually a zebra, that seemed to suppress it even further. So it made it even less likely that you would see it. Hmm. Uh, and so the idea is that what's happening is that when you hear the word, you know, part of, if you hear zebra, part of what you know about zebras is what they look like. And it's activating visual representations that are similar to the representations activated by an actual zebra or a picture of a zebra. And so it's actually boosting your perception such that when you are getting this input that's otherwise too weak, it's too fragmented to, uh, for, for you to be uh, conscious of it, if you heard its name previously, you're more likely to actually be able to consciously perceive it. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Almost cool. like if, it, if someone points at clouds and yeah. says, like, that looks like... A giraffe. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, yeah, that cloud does look exactly like a giraffe, yeah, and you would yeah. never, ever think that without yeah. that influence. Yeah, so one, one important caveat is that just hearing the name, if there's no image there, it doesn't cause you to hallucinate it, right? Because right. there's just nothing. Just like if someone p points you know, to a cloud that really doesn't look like a giraffe, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. they can't really make you see it as a giraffe. You just turned me crazy with yeah. your words. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if, it, like, if there's something there that you're like, oh, yeah, I could put these pieces together and get a giraffe, right? Yeah, yeah. Then the word actually helps you to construct that, that whole out of the pieces. Uh, and what's cool to think is that you know, if we didn't have a word for something, right, there would be uh, no way, or at least, you know, you would be as effective at potentiating vision in this way, right? So having a word for something, it means the difference between, in this case, like seeing something and not seeing it. Right. Um, so that's, I think that's, that's a pretty cool um, finding. Um, uh, why why do you think that is? Why do you think the brain has um, e evolved to uh, be it, just because it, it helps if 
Like, like you're in the bush and someone says lion or whatever, and all of a sudden you hear that call and it helps to be able to like, oh, right there. Well, I, can... I think, I think, yeah, I think that's part of what the meaning of the word is, right? So I think it's useful to think of words, right? So, um, you know, people point, like they use their hand, hands, figures to like point to things. Right. That's actually another thing that seems to be unique to humans, like other animals in, mm -hmm. in the wild. You, you, they can be trained to point or to follow points, but in the wild, like... Other animals don't seem to point things out to one another. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, but uh, so humans do this, but points are pretty like vague often. Like if you point to something, it's you don't really know what it is that you're pointing to. Right. right. If I pointed out this window right now, you would have no idea yeah. of all the various. There's a road and there's cars and there's people and there's trees. And, right. But if I point and I say park, you would know exactly where I'm pointing. Yeah. And so you can actually think of words as really elaborated points mm. right so uh you know and they're also portable right so i can cause you to <clears throat> activate visual representations of redness just by saying the word red and just by virtue of understanding that word red right you've just now activated <laughs> Bits of redness. Right? I, I, I'm like paying so much more attention <laughs> to these blinds that are red right behind you ever yeah. since you've done saying the word red. I've just like, it's like I can't get them out of my yeah, but periphery. Even, you know, even if there was no red in the room, right, you are capable of, um, of imagining it or just thinking thoughts of redness, right, that are neurally, we know, are overlapping with actual visual experiences of redness, mm. right? So the word is acting as a cue to activate some visual experience, right? That um, in the absence of any actual, right? So someone can tell you about, right? They're, you know, a, a dog, right? And even though there's no dog in, in, in front of you, right? And actually that's pretty common, right? You talk about things that aren't in front of you because if they're in front of you, you can just point to it. Right. right? We often use language to talk about things that aren't there, mm -hmm. right? Either in, in, space or in time, you know, things in the past or the future, right? And you're constructing mental representations of it, you know, in the absence of the actual thing, right? So that's one of the main things that gives language its power, right? You can sort of point with language to anything that's not presently there. Right, right. Right. So uh, this is this, uh, and I mean, my podcast is just so full of tangents all the time. <laughs> it's just the way that my brain works. Yeah, yeah. But this, but this just uh, reminds too. me of of uh, you're talking about how words can be used as as like a more specific a way to zero in on a thing or ideas or or whatever. All, but also, uh, you did some um, fun work about how. How how words can sometimes lead to some confusion. Your stuff about the uh, cell phones and why cell phones are yeah so distracting. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so this is a, a paper with um, Lauren Emerson, and <laughs> this, uh, this is going to clear things up so much for <laughs> why we're all driven so crazy by cell phones. Yeah, and so uh, the idea behind the study was to sort of see, you know, it, it was one of those studies that like we. We were at a party and like, oh, you know, why is it that hearing someone talking on their cell phone is so annoying? Yeah. Like so much more annoying, it seems, than people like Because you can be at a party that... and listening to a whole bunch of other conversations going on and you can still kind of function just fine. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the idea that we had was that maybe when you are 
overhearing someone speaking on a cell phone, you basically, and it has to do with like our expertise at being language users, right? You hear one side of a conversation and you're sort of automatically filling in uh, what's on the other end. And that's cognitively taxing actually. And if you hear both sides of a conversation, um, then you know there is less there to fill in because your sort of predictive uh, uh, urges are are being met. Uh, so we coined this word halfalog uh, yeah. to to talk about uh, half of a conversation. And uh, and the the experiments themselves were pretty straightforward. We had people do some tasks while in the background they would hear a monologue, uh, a dialogue, or half a log, uh, and then we also had some controls to make sure that it's not just like hearing two different voices whether or hearing one voice mm-hmm. um showing that it, it does seem to be about the content um and so yeah so um the way we recorded these half logs was you know just have two people have a conversation and then present the uh, the subject with one side of the conversation so it's not, it was an actual conversation and um the effects weren't huge and, and um the study sort of the, the the media kind of got a hold of it and maybe made a bigger deal out of it than right, but right. um but it, we, we did find that the he- hearing one side of a conversation um was on, on the kind of task we used slightly more distracting mm. um well people like focus in on like secrets too and that might have a, a whole another set of causes altogether where it's like oh someone talking about me but but oh, but yeah. it's the idea of like only hearing one piece of the information whereas if you overhear a conversation in a restaurant and it's a whole conversation, your brain just naturally it just goes in and out. It's just very easy to process, so you yeah. don't even have to really that's right. think about it. That, that, but, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but just hearing the one half is just like, what's going on on that? Right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. Um, all right. Well, I have I have just one quick last thing that that's regarding some other stuff that we've talked about. But before before we wrap up here, um, what is the charity of the week that you would like to plug? A, a nonprofit. I'll plug uh, Doctors Without Borders. Oh, awesome! That's a wonderful one. Um, I I think isn't that the the Colbert. Um, religion that he started or, or not oh, Col- the, not colbert john oliver john oliver he started yes, the yes. new religion i think all the money doesn't that go yeah to yeah like, i uh, saw the little the little uh <laughs> caption there maybe that's what primed me I don't yeah know. maybe <laughs> it's a well anyway it's a fantastic charity and people can go to the here we are podcast.com and cl- click on the link to uh to learn more about it and this is the last thing just i'm I'm going to circle back to because i I was going through my notes and as we were talking about um as we were talking about the um kind of evolution and and the the diversity the speciation of of language and and um language being shaped uh like a beak to meet these various needs and i don't know if this is your work or just some stuff that i saw kind of alongside some of your work or your collaborators or or whatever but but something that really struck me as interesting was this idea of 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 people ha- near the equator um having like a more a more diversity of language near the equator mm, yeah. and and people in um people in certain areas having different like tonal languages for different reasons or like people in a jungle using like higher pitched sounds. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So uh, could you talk about just a few of yeah. those things? Just because so, I saw it briefly and it was so intriguing to me because we we have had things like I had I had um, Marlene Zook on um, months and months ago talking about how um, it, it, you know the the idea of people using more spices near the equator because there's more parasites and and that sort of thing so we have kind of talked about this idea of yeah and and i think so thanks for the question it's a great question i i am uh uh it's it's really fun to think about right because um people make observations about cultural differences for example right and you know it's like you know people wear different things in different cultures right right and uh you know why is that you know well one reason is that people live in different climates and certain kinds of clothes are just like a better idea, you know? Right. Yeah, right. Uh, Coats didn't take off as much along the equator as they did in Iceland. Right. So there are just these functional needs, but there are also just issues of availability, right? Like, why are some musical instruments more common in some places than others? Well, one reason, by no means the only one, but one reason is that, you know, certain trees, for example, might make you know, better guitars or mm. better drums, right? And the availability of certain materials, right, may make it more likely to have, you know, that, that a given culture will uh, invent and, and use certain musical instruments, mm. right? And so I think it's useful to think um, in, 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 the, in, in that way, right? And so with regard to languages, languages are inventions just like musical instruments and just like clothing. Uh, they fulfill certain functions, uh, but you know they they are they are inventions, and um, it's hard. It's often hard to think about how the local environment would shape language, uh, and so often the hypotheses people posed are you know are kind of ad hoc. But recently, there's been some some fairly solid work um, exploring how various ecological environmental factors might shape languages. One is um, so the issue of tones. Um, so it's been argued that uh, people, uh, so to produce tones um, requires fine, particularly fine control of your vocal apparatus. Uh, and a drier climate makes it harder to control the pitch of your voice. So that's oh, that's interesting. Right. And so, you know, the effect might be very, very small so that basically people living in wetter climates, right, uh, it's not that the wetter climate somehow causes tones in a right. language, right, but it doesn't select against them, right? right and right. so uh, a language that is spoken in a drier climate, you know, other things being equal is less likely to have tones, Right. right, and all you need is a very small bias for it to make a difference, right? Um, in the case of uh, the the diversity of languages uh, being much higher in some parts of the world than others, so uh, Dan Nettle, I think in the early '90s, did this really nice um, sort of op- well correlation kind of a study where it looked at uh, the diversity of life uh, as correlated. So different species as correlated with the diversity of languages and showing that there is a fairly strong correlation. So places with more different kinds of animals have more languages, mm-hmm. right? And one explanation for this is that places that have multiple um, environmental niches that support a larger diversity of life also 
have more niches for different languages. That oftentimes it's because there are, you know, it's harder to move around, and so the societies tend to stay smaller, right? Right. Uh, and so if you know it's harder to travel to n nearby villages, you're more likely to over time develop different languages, mm. right? But um, connecting this to some of the things I said earlier, uh, the different environments uh, can also mean that there are different selective pressures on the languages and it kind of increases the likelihood that the languages that will emerge in a particular region will be more different from one another hmm. than if you have like uh, a more homogenous ecological landscape. Oh, that's interesting. It's just interesting the way that it's um, we've evolved like this spectrum, this kind of big flexibility. But it, like one of the yeah. things that caught my eye was was the idea that a low voice wouldn't work as well in, say, the jungle because, mm -hmm. uh, like, I, I was just went to a baseball game uh, recently and, and everyone was like, wow, your voice really carries. I have a pretty low uh, right. voice, you know, and I, and, and I can, so I can cheer louder than a lot of people or whatever. But if you're in the, a jungle and there's, and, and there's like a lot of vegetation and those longer wavelengths don't, yeah. don't travel as well, then that's going to be like higher pitched things. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think it's really important. You know, it's easy to dismiss these ideas because, like, you're in the jungle and you speak in a, in a low voice and people can hear you and you're like, see, it works just fine. Right. right. But you have to think that, like, even if it makes, you know, a 1% or a tenth of a percent right. difference, that can really snowball and mean the difference between yeah. language. It's like look at lactose tolerance or something yeah. like that where it's just like milk. Milk had just that much of enough of a benefit. Right. Just simple milk to create a... a complete change in the yeah. genes of a, a whole population yeah yeah and and uh and the language has done um the same i don't yeah. know if that's a good yeah. metaphor or not but um, uh yeah i mean the the yeah it's it's it works it works, <laughs> it, works. it can be even smaller than that <laughs> right right, right. A tiny tiny benefit can, can really add up right and it's and it's not about just you know like how likely you are right because we're talking about cultural evolution you know we don't have to talk about like how does having a lower voice you know change the number of kids you have and stuff no, this is this is a culturally transmitted trait um and all of these factors figure in if if it's slightly easier or more difficult to articulate something right it's more like if it's easier to do something it's more likely to be copied it's more right. likely to be passed down hmm so um, awesome. Well, this has been a very fascinating interview. Thank you, uh, Thank you. Uh, Gary Lupian, for being my guest today. And, um, and uh, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, thank you for being curious. I'll talk with you next week. Thank you all for listening. And a special thanks to all of you that rated and reviewed the podcast on iTunes and whatever other platform you're listening to it on and for subscribing. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for spreading the word for me to uh, all of your friends and family and um, co-workers and making mass chain letters to email to people that says if they don't listen and then tell 10 people about it, they're going to die. Or if they do, they'll prosper. Uh, special thanks for those ones. Uh, we are now 11 reviews away um, from from another bonus episode. So if you like this show and wish there was more of them, um, I'm going to have to get to work and 
get some more episodes together real soon. I don't have a lot in the bank right now, so I'm I'm going to be busy trying to uh, stockpile episodes. So um, anyhow, next week on the program, uh, a little something different. Um, I I met. I met a life coach on another podcast, and uh, and she talked to me about mine and coming on mine, and I was a bit skeptical. I even say that in the beginning of the episode, I never uh, I never pictured myself um, talking with a life coach um, in in my life or on this podcast. Um, not totally what it's about in my in my skeptical mind, anyway. And so I kind of reluctantly um, had her on. I, I'm only saying all of this because of how amazingly well it ended up going. And once again, I realized that I was just a bit too close-minded. Um, so anyway, I, I think you guys, uh, especially if you're as skeptical as I am, or even if you're not, I think you will enjoy next week's episode with Nina Rubin. If you want to find out more about her ahead of time, you can go to Coaching by Nina Rubin. That's Coaching by N-I-N-A-R-U-B-I-N.com. Coaching by Nina Rubin.com. And you can have a brief look at what uh, what she does in her business. And it was a super fun episode. So I, I think you're really going to like it. I think it's something different for this podcast. and um, But still along the same, not that different, along the same lines. So uh, I, I just think it's cool that we're able to get some diversity on the show. So make sure and tune in next week. Tune in, download next week, listen next week, listen next week. Yeah, that's what I should say. Make sure and listen next week. Um, that way, whatever, however the lingo changes in the future, um, that will always be relevant and I won't be dating myself for um, future listeners millennia to come. Um, this is what I sound like when I'm by myself, by the way. This is just what my brain sounds like when I spend time by myself. It's a little bit of a nightmare. It is. Um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It's a little crazy. Um, uh, <laughs> um, and here I yeah, still talking. I, I think, well, maybe if I say this, that will make my brain think of something funny to get me to end it. And here we are again. How many times have I done? <laughs> how many times have I done this now? This is a simple thing. This is just an outro. You guys don't need to hear me go on and on for minutes about how hard it is to make an outro because it's not. It's not that hard. I could just hit stop right now and re-record it. But here I am, still talking, wasting your time. I apologize. You guys don't deserve that. You're great. Thank you for being curious and interested and listening to the show. Let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island, yeah. and he was blowing Boris Karloff. 
What would it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Koff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you fuck 